0: Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which is available now, and The Wellness Trap, which comes out on April 25th. You can learn more and pre order the book at Christy Harrison.com slash the wellness trap. That's Christy Harrison.com slash the wellness trap. Welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is Alan Levinovitz, a religious studies scholar and author of the book Natural, How Faith in Nature's Goodness Leads to Harmful Fads, Unjust Laws, and Flawed Science. We discuss the problems with framing eating and wellness practices as quote unquote natural, the weird parallels between gun culture and wellness culture, the tricky balance between empathizing with why people are driven to harmful wellness practices and being clear and calling out misinformation, the need for nuance when discussing the connection between physical and psychological issues, and more. It's a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. Before I do, a few quick announcements. This podcast is brought to you by my upcoming book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Wellbeing, which is available for pre-order now. The book explores the connections between diet culture and wellness culture, how the wellness space became a hotbed of scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the trap to learn more and pre-order the book for its April 25th release. That's christyharrison.com slash the trap. And once you've pre-ordered, you can get a special bonus Q&A with me about the book by uploading your proof of purchase at christyharrison.com slash bookbonus. If you like this show and want to help support it, I'd be so grateful if you'd subscribe, rate, and review. You can do that wherever you're listening to this, and you can also get it as a newsletter in your inbox every other week, where you can either listen to the audio or read a full transcript or both. Subscribe to that at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Alan Levinovitz. So Alan, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to chat with you again. This is for a new podcast series that has launched since you were on my old podcast, Food Psych, a million years ago. But that episode was a fan favorite. And you know, I still get a lot of great feedback about that today. And and so I'm excited to talk with you again about your latest book and all your other work that's come out since then.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting
0: yeah so I'd love to start by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to do the work you do
1: yeah so i'm a I'm a bit unusual in the in the wellness and food and fitness space I'm a religion professor, and a long time ago, I started noticing some pretty interesting similarities between how people Choose their foods religiously, so taboos and ideas of purity and impurity, and how people were choosing their foods in a supposedly secular way. so I saw restrictive dieting that had a veneer of science as a kind of parallel practice to the the religious diets that both you know promised salvation and also threatened damnation if you ate the wrong things and that led me down a long path of thinking about how. My discipline, religious studies. You know, I do classical China. How my discipline in general and ideas of ritual and and purity and impurity or sin and guilt and holiness could help me understand what looks secular—the the wellness world or the fitness world or the food world—but but actually, I think is is really helpfully understood through the lens of religion.
0: And we talked in our first interview about your first book the gluten lie and how the discourse about gluten that was happening at the time and that is still happening today had these sort of religious undertones and now with your book natural i think there's a lot a lot more contemporary stuff to unpack there too
1: absolutely you know with gluten what i saw was people were treating gluten free diets but also you know as i as i talk about in the book other sort of bad substances whether it's fat or carbs or sugar or whatever it is, they they were treating them the way you might treat something that that was deeply impure, that was banned by God, like you couldn't even touch it or it would completely defile you. And in the course of researching that book, one of the reasons people gave me for why they wanted to avoid these substances was that they weren't natural. And I began thinking more about the power of that word and as soon as you start seeing it i mean anyone who's listening to this i just you know as soon as you start seeing how natural is used to justify things or to argue against things bad things are unnatural good things are natural you will never be able to unsee it it's it's everywhere and it's the sort of decisive argument that i i came to realize nature was just the secular analog for god and natural was a secular analog for holy and so The idea was you do what nature wants you to do in the same way that you do what God wants you to do, right? It's what nature intended. It's what nature wants us to eat or how nature wants us to parent. And and if anything ever goes wrong or anything is ever, you know, making you sick, it must be because it's unnatural. And so, that that was a really big sort of aha moment for me. And I spent, as you know, a lot of the book just unpacking what that means in various facets of our life.
0: Yeah. And it's not just about food. I thought that was so fascinating that you got into so many other realms that, you know, it sort of started with food, right? Because I think you said you were inspired by the research you had done for the gluten Lie, but then it goes into all these other avenues too.
1: That's right. You see it everywhere. I mean, I, as I talk about in the book, you know, there's a natural birth section, but as a parent, natural parenting is something that you hear about all the time. You're supposed to, what, you know, why do you breastfeed? Because it's natural. Why do you sleep with your child? Because it's natural. And there's often these sort of romanticization of a kind of garden of Eden where where you've got this exoticized hunter gatherer that lives perfectly and is happy and is always healthy and and their kids, you know, are, are never are never throwing temper tantrums. And then you have <laughs> you know, uh, unnatural Western children who are all corrupted by our, our horrible, unnatural parenting. And so it's like, you know, it's there, it's in sexuality, it was even an economic system. So I, I really thought this was an important way to look at how when we're confused, because life is complicated, and we're looking for explanations and heuristics to guide the choices we make, we want something simple and decisive and, and naturalness in, in a world where the authority of religion has receded from areas like parenting or or diet. we substitute the idea of naturalness, and I think it's a it's a big mistake because you can love nature without worshiping it and understand that just because something is natural, you know, as you say in your book doesn't mean that it's good
0: right well, yeah, and you you argue that like the binary of natural versus unnatural has some really harmful consequences. It's unhelpful for understanding like the nuances. That really exist in the world. What are some of the consequences of categorizing things in that way?
1: You know, it's funny, some people want to go the complete other direction, which is the idea that everything everything is natural. We're all stardust at the end of the day. So there's no difference between New York City and Yellowstone Park, which I, I don't think is true. I think that if you understand naturalness as a spectrum, and the most natural things are things that human will had no involvement in. So anything that existed before humans is completely 100% natural. <laughs> Dinosaurs are 100% natural. And unnatural is stuff that we've willed that wouldn't exist without our active willing, like New York City. I think those are useful distinctions and and we can talk about natural and unnatural in a lot of interesting and helpful ways. The problem happens when we map that natural unnatural binary onto good and evil. And so when when we start to think that natural is a synonym for good and unnatural is a synonym for bad, as it has been in our language since, you know, before Shakespeare, you know, unnatural death is a bad death, that sort of thing, uh, a death that's immoral or or out of the out of the order of things that are that are morally good. That's the problem. And so what I really want people to do is realize that that when they when they make that move, shifting from natural, unnatural to good, bad, they're they're gonna end up making a lot of mistakes because what's natural is not always good. What's unnatural is is not always bad. And those that that idea has been used to justify all sorts of things that otherwise would be very difficult to justify, whether it's opposition to interracial marriage, you know, it's unnatural to reproduce with people who are not your same race, which is both, you know, is both untrue, but also it wouldn't matter if it were unnatural. What what matters is whether it's harmful or not. And that's, that's a really, really important thing. I think we can be captivated by the magic of the natural argument.
0: Right. And I mean, I think I see it a lot with food, right? This idea that natural is always better. And with, I talk a little bit about the anti-vax movement in my book, or I have a whole chapter devoted to it actually, and this idea that vaccines are quote unquote unnatural, that it's eliding or it's, it's leaving out this question of whether or not something is harmful, right? Like the harms to public health of avoiding vaccines are pretty incontrovertible. But this idea that vaccines are supposedly not natural, that it's putting these artificial toxins into your body, clouds that argument about harm.
1: That's exactly right. And that argument has been around in anti-vaccine circles for a very, very, very long time, the idea that vaccines are are unnatural and therefore they're bad and we should prefer natural immunity, for example, over the unnatural immunity of vaccines. And it is like any simplistic binary that's not accurate. If you push on it, it starts to collapse almost immediately. You can point out all kinds of things like infant mortality rates that are extremely high in the natural world. Or you can point out the fact that humans are living longer than they ever have before, thanks to unnatural innovations like food plentifulness and the ability to treat illness. But that's, I think, in a way, what I've realized is that trying to make those sorts of rational arguments is a mistake, because what natural means to people is not, you know, it's not something they've thought through and come to a kind of rational conclusion that they want to pursue natural things. Rather, it's that there's something deeply mysterious and beautiful about the idea that there are forces beyond and before human beings that have created the order in the world that we see today, everything from butterflies to trees to our own bodies. And that that really is true, and it is cool, and it it is important. Whether or not you're religious, that's just incredible. And so when people are confused and suffering and searching for some way to make decisions and searching for some explanation for why there are bad things happening in the world, the idea of naturalness is is helpful. It's helpful not because it's accurate, but because it's satisfying. It's a satisfying, simple explanation. And so that's something I think is really important to understand that that the reason this argument is so appealing and and nature looks so good to so many people is not because they've thought it through, but because they need it to look good and they need it to be satisfying.
0: Right, because what's the alternative if not? It's like this world of mystery and perhaps anxiety and fear that we don't have explanations for all these things that are happening and, and some really terrible things like pandemics or infant mortality or things like that.
1: Yeah, I saw that with the pandemic. Right? People are saying, oh, this is nature taking revenge, right? There's this, it's like, oh, we've been out, we were outside of the natural order. And so this is this has come to get us. I mean, you see this argument and it's a bipartisan Illusion. So you see this in very conservative circles, uh, and you see it in very liberal circles as well. sort of a horseshoe theory of politics. Those ends of the horseshoe end are, are right there with natural. This is why, for example, people have talked about this, but why you saw QAnon intersecting with yoga influencers. People are like, I don't understand this. How could they, these are two worlds that we thought were so far apart, but really they're united by, and again, this is not uh, yoga and wellness are not, uh, I, I hate to generalize about these communities, but there are parts of those communities where people are searching for binary explanations to suffering and naturalness is the answer. And QAnon and other sort of cultish movements do that as well. And there's this kind of nature core conservative movement that also appeals to naturalness in the sense that they see Progress or change is unnatural and they want to return to what they see as natural social roles, for example, for women and men or natural sexuality that is married couples and not homosexuality. So that argument can be can be used powerfully to justify virtually any ideology.
0: I mean, I think about it in in my field, the intuitive eating field and how explanations of the nature of our relationship with food, you know, some of the the explanations that I've used to sort of explain intuitive eating and where it comes from, unwittingly sort of rely on that distinction between natural and unnatural. You know, it's just, it's just so insidious.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's because it's so appealing. So in, in Chinese, the typical translation, ancient Chinese text for natural is ziran, which literally means self-so or so of itself. So it means spontaneous. It's not ordered right. by humans then. So it's ordered by of itself. And I think there's something really romantic about the idea that if we just cut away the clutter, all the pollution that's been forced upon us by culture or our parents or whatever, and we just allow ourselves to be spontaneous, that will like miraculously result in everything being harmonious. And there is something, I see that a lot in intuitive eating circles, right? Where there's this idea that's like, the problem is you've been told all this stuff. It's unnatural and it's destroyed your natural relationship to food, which would which would otherwise be harmonious. So we'll cut all of that other stuff away. Then what you'll be left with is the right way to eat, the spontaneous, the ziran way to eat, the self-so way to eat, the organic is another word that, that taps into that idea, right? It's organic, it's of itself, it's grassroots, rather than top down. And that's just not true. <laughs> sometimes things that are so of themselves suck and our impulses suck and we need to control them with rituals and culture and taboos. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that our spontaneous impulses need a little help sometimes, I think. And it, it can be hard to admit that in part, and maybe this is hopefully something we can talk about more is related to wellness, because when it, it is precisely when we seek these sorts of explanations that we tend to be at our most disempowered. So we're looking for things like, well, well, how do I decide what I want for my kid? Or how do I decide what to eat? Or how to, you know, we're asking those questions when we're vulnerable, when we're suffering, when we need an answer. And so we then search for an answer. This explains anti-vaccine stuff as well. We want an answer that empowers us. Well, I don't need the government. I don't need doctors. I don't need people telling me what to do. I don't need people telling me how to eat. It's their fault. And they have control over me. And if I get rid of them and I take control and and the answers come from within me, that's really helpful, right? Because it empowers you. And if nothing else, empowerment is a good way to stave off suffering. So so in that sense, it's a complicated relationship between the appeal to nature and the kinds of things people need when they are in a situation where the appeal to nature is compelling, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much to unpack there for sure. I I'm thinking first about like the intuitive eating stuff and I would say not necessarily that people's impulses suck, but that it's hard to untangle what actually is the natural impulse or whatever or like the impulse from the self from what is what has been socialized by the culture, right? And I think, you know, I've seen that with a lot of people recovering and healing from disordered eating like sometimes it goes back so far. Some people were put on their first diet before they even remember, like age three, age four, whatever. And how do you get back to something that's quote unquote natural when you can't even remember what that was like or never even knew what that looked like? That might be someone who needs a little bit more structure or support in their relationship with food. That's It's not going to be this sort of freewheeling thing that it might be for someone who at least has a memory of having that that more relaxed, unintruded upon relationship with food.
1: Yeah, well, this is a a good example too of alighting natural good, unnatural bad. It's the, the problem with disordered eating is not that they were told to diet and therefore there was this outside thing imposed on them that is intrinsically bad. The problem is that the outside thing that they were told to do is bad. humans are just intrinsically social. We live in communities, we eat with others, we eat foods that are that have meaning, that extends in webs beyond us and between us. And so the idea that we could sort of develop eating patterns that that just bubble up from within us unpolluted by outside forces, I think is, is wrong. What we can hope for is eating patterns that are relatively effortless. And that's just like another way of talking about habituated, that aren't pathological, right? That don't hurt us, and that and that that could mean tying yourself to someone else's eating habits. So, just as an example, for me, my spontaneous impulses during the pandemic were to drink more. I just started drinking more alcohol. I think many people did the same thing. And one thing that's helped me is to tie my drinking habits to my wife's, which much healthier, right? So I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to drink what my wife drinks, and that's it. So it's very unintuitive. It's very sort of forced upon me. But it's good because it's getting me away from a pathology. But again, I mean, to go back to the example you gave, part of the problem is that people who have been told to diet or have been shamed for their body, often what they're also suffering from, which is separate from the pathological eating, is disempowerment, feeling like their self worth is bound up with either parents who are always telling them to diet or what society has told them to look like or how to eat. And so then there's two different problems. One is feeling empowered when for so much of your life you've been disempowered. And two, figuring out how to eat in a way that doesn't harm you. And those are actually separate things, I think, and the desire to bring them together can yield the illusion that that what you need is to just strip everything away until it's just you controlling yourself spontaneously. That's the, that's the sort of appeal to natural thing, again, in the same way that like, you know, if you're, your health would come back, if only you just ignored all the mean doctors and all the people telling you what to do, and you just did whatever you wanted, right, in accordance with nature. That's helpful for empowerment, but not for your health.
0: Right. I mean, you've written in other places about this idea of wellness culture as a form of what you call empowerment epistemology. I found that really helpful and intriguing. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. So I originally thought of this when I was thinking about gun culture, which again, seems like a weird intersection with wellness. Although now people are now that we're seeing that more, it's not so it's not so crazy. But when I first started writing about that, I realized that gun owners have a relationship with their guns. It's a lot like, you know, sort of new age person's relationship with a crystal, which is to say, they found a community of people that listens to them. They feel like the authorities, in one case, the medical authorities, if you're a sort of alternative healing or alternative wellness, kind of, if you're attracted to that medical authorities on the one hand or government authorities on the other, which, which is guns, you don't trust them. So you don't trust the police to protect you or you don't trust doctors to heal you or keep you safe. And so you turn to a, an authority that says, hey, we've got something for you. It's going to give you control over your life. The gun, right? You get to protect yourself. This crystal, you get to come up with your own healing plan. We're going to personalize it for you. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I, I'm in control. I don't have to cede control of my health or my safety to somebody else. And that's, that's very empowering. So then what you have to do is you have to figure out, this is the epistemology part of the theory of knowledge part. You you, you begin to know things in a way that is not oriented towards truth. You begin to know things in a way that's oriented towards feeling like you have agency, feeling like you have power. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, I don't think. It's just that the problem is sometimes it means that you believe things that aren't true. <laughs> like having a gun in your house just doesn't make you safer, you know, and having a crystal just isn't going to prevent cancer. But that's not the goal of those objects in the, at the end of the day. And then on top of that, the other thing about an empowering epistemology, that I think is really important is that It's a way of dealing with something that historians of technology refer to as epistemic opacity, which is just fancy, fancy academic talk for not being able to understand how things work. And so whether it's our technology or our our legal system or whatever it is, we're increasingly surrounded by things, whether it's medicine or our phones, that we just don't understand. We don't understand how they work. We don't understand the machinery behind them. They are not transparent. They are opaque. And that's very disempowering. And so again the crystals or the gun make it very simple. What keeps you safe? Having a gun to defend yourself. What keeps you safe? Eating naturally. And that's, that's what an empowering epistemology is. And it's, if we want to fight back, you know, as you do and I do against toxic forms of wellness, one thing we really have to do is realize that the market for them exists because people are being disempowered by a whole host of broader forces in ways that I really think are not their fault.
0: I agree. I mean, as someone who, you know, I talk about in the book, like I have multiple chronic conditions and many things that took years to get diagnosed and resulted in a lot of dismissal and feeling unheard by the healthcare system and feeling like, you know, I had to take matters into my own hands if I wanted to heal myself. I very much understand why people seek out these alternative sources in those moments because they feel so let down by the healthcare system by you know science by conventional medicine and i think that makes people so vulnerable to exploitation and being preyed upon by these unscrupulous actors and sometimes well meaning but just misled themselves providers and sometimes you know bad actors with a with a clear agenda to mislead
1: That's exactly right and so I used to be, especially even when I wrote The Gluten Lie, I used to just kind of rail against these ideas. It's like, well, they're not true. I was it's like, kind of like a new atheist for food or something like that. It's like, oh, like, look at your ritual. It doesn't make any sense. Like, what if this is just, you know, a nocebo effect or a placebo effect? But what I realized is I was, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, you've got like IBS, you got Crohn's, you've got some kind of undiagnosed autoimmune condition. Just feeling empowered might be the best thing you've got. And feeling empowered, I mean, psychology, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, psychology does affect physiology. There isn't a clear divide between those things. And so, if you're feeling less anxious, or you're feeling like you have more power, or you're feeling more confident because of a ritual that you're doing… I think I need to be, I I can only speak for myself, but I think people, you know, I think people in general maybe need to be a little bit more careful before they waltz into the church and like start, you know, trashing all the, <laughs> trashing all the icons and the stories and stuff. It's like, well, what do you, you know, th- these are important things for people. Um, that gun is doing something for that person, that crystal or that diet or that, you know, that that, that juice smoothie or the like carnivore diet or whatever it is they're doing, it, it's doing something for them. And it, it's not kind. Uh, to do what I've often done in the past and regret which is to just try to take those things away or sneer at them rather than trying to understand why they exist and and maybe even maybe even make room for them in a way that isn't pathological in a way that's health um there is room for ritual and there is room for for the sorts of things that you know there's room for empowerment you just got to figure out how to get it without like vaccine denial or something like that. And I think that, I think that, I think a lot of people in this space, and I, I know you've you you have seen that, I'm not going to name any names, but a lot of the you know, people who are otherwise kind of admirably pro-vaccine and fighting the good fight, I think there's a kind of edge to them that's deeply off-putting to the people who are seeking out anti-vaccine rhetoric as a form of empowerment to disempowered people. They They feel authoritative and scary and it doesn't reach people where where they need to be reached.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've had a conversation with someone else on this podcast about the authoritative nature of like the delivery of information in the traditional healthcare system and how when you're someone who's already feeling dismissed and disempowered and doubtful about the information that you're getting and whether it's really helpful or whatever, like hearing something delivered in that tone can feel... Extremely off-putting and can feel like, okay, well now I know for sure that they don't have my best interests at heart, right? It can sort of feed into some of the rhetoric in those spaces and like the nexus of wellness and conspiracy theories that says that big pharma or big medicine is out to get people.
1: Precisely. And I, I don't know I don't know exactly how to, you know, I haven't figured out yet how to walk that line, in part because And this is something else we may end up talking about, in part because when you get too generous (laughs) to the sorts of rituals and beliefs that people have come to embrace out of a need for empowerment, sometimes you risk not being clear enough about what's true. It's very, very difficult, in my opinion, to be sensitive in the ways that you need to to the things that people need or the things that people believe while also not compromising on the truth of particular positions. Um, that's just you know, it's 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 hard and sometimes I think it's especially hard when you don't know a person right? You're not you know, like when we're doing this podcast, we don't know who's on the other end of this listening. Maybe it's someone who's in a perfect position to hear the things we're saying and they're gonna feel great about it. Maybe it's someone who's gonna be hurt by those things. and and when you have a personal relationships with someone, It's much different than when you're writing a book or doing a podcast because you can't meet them where they are and and, and show them that you care about their humanity.
0: Yeah, I've struggled with that so much myself. And I, I really appreciate hearing you be open about your evolution with that, because that's been something that I've had to deal with a lot in writing this new book and trying to walk a line of having empathy for people and compassion for why people choose the things they do and not going in there and just stripping away the things that are meaningful to people while also holding a line on like what is true and what is backed by solid evidence and what evidence is more shaky and I think in like my first book and the earlier part of my career I was like very much coming down on the side of clarity and wanting to be super clear that certain things are harmful and here's the evidence and the science to back that up and I've always tried to be compassionate but I think sometimes I've missed the mark certainly with with that and and also I think part of that was like where I was in my own evolution too I had disordered eating and uh, undiagnosed eating disorder and struggled for many years and then came to find my own recovery through intuitive eating and therapy and support and started to do this work. And, you know, I think that there was a little bit of like a proselytizing energy to it, right? There's a sense of like, this is a, a chapter in my own healing to spread the message that was so helpful to me and a zealotry to that
1: this actually brings us back to the intuitive or brings me back at least to intuitive eating and thinking about that. And sort of what I was trying to figure out, like the problems I, I, like the the problem I had with this idea that you like strip everything away or something like that, which is, again, this is that naturalness appeal is it's a kind of universal thing. It's like, well, here's how everyone should be eating, right? It's like, you just eat naturally, you strip everything else out and allow yourself to return to your sort of organic, pure, holy self. But actually, I think that it's more like, Harmonious eating. There are gonna be lots of people in lots of different situations where it will require different things to harmonize with that situation. Sometimes it will require eating at times that, that you're not hungry. If I'm in China and I'm visiting a family and they bring out this like dinner to honor me and I just ate sadly, I'm just gonna eat. Like I better eat, you know, and it's not and I'm not hungry and they're forcing me to, but like that's how I harmonize with that situation. And I think it will be helpful to be in a place with my diet where that doesn't feel like a violation of the way I need to eat, because that's going to cause that's going to be pathological, it's going to cause me to conflict with that situation. And so sometimes it's going to be forced. And sometimes it's not sometimes it's going to merge out of community, sometimes it doesn't. And also to what you said, it's going to be different for everybody, not because everyone's pure self is different, but because some people I mean, people don't need to eat according to their pure self. Some people don't need that. Some people need to eat in ways that harmonizes with their rhythms of their community or whatever, or whatever it happens to be. So yeah, I think that's I think that's a big part of it.
0: I mean, I will say with intuitive eating, there's such black and white interpretations of it that say you can only eat when you're hungry and you have to stop when you're full. And it's like turning it into another diet, but actually intuitive eating as a model is definitely like open to eating when you're not hungry and eating when you're full because of all these other like cultural and logistical reasons, you know. But it's, I think, again, the sort of way that things get stripped down to very black and white forms online and disseminated in ways that are not so helpful. Like the nuance is totally lacking.
1: Yes, absolutely. And another place, I don't know, It's a very, it's like, like, there's like three extremely touchy subjects that I'm sort of throwing around in my head. But I think another place where this kind of black and white thinking is unproductive is, well, so okay. I'll take one I'm I'm really familiar with, which is chronic, chronic illness. A lot of people, as you know, personally and professionally in the chronic illness community have been... Dismissed by the medical establishment, they often go through, you know, nine years of of being diagnosed with the modern equivalent of hysteria before they, you know, you find out you have endometriosis or Crohn's disease or, or whatever it happens to be. And the response to that deep historical injustice is something like, in my experience, chronic illness must be always understood in terms of how the sufferer experiences it. Not to put too fine a point, I'm sort of generalizing here, but it'll be helpful for the point I'm trying to make. And the result of that, unfortunately, is not unlike the result of what happens with people who go on diets and experience good things, which is that you end up being put in a position where sometimes, sometimes, in some cases, we know, again, psychology is an important thing that chronic illness can be in part a function of anxiety. We just know that. That's just a thing that we know. But saying that feels like a betrayal. It feels like a sort of justification of all of the times in which people have been dismissed by the medical establishment. So then you're stuck in this horrible position where either you have to never allow in that explanation ever, right? Like long COVID is never, ever, ever. And I've written, you know, defending long COVID and saying that we, should, we, we need to be really, really attentive to it. But if, but if part of that position is never, ever, ever is long COVID a function of like psychogenic problems, which is itself stigmatized, we're in a bad situation. In the same way that we're in a bad situation where your gluten-free diet, the efficacy of it could never be psychogenic, that's not a good place to be, right? And so that's another thing I really struggle with, which is how do we acknowledge the 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 like suffering experienced by communities due to snap misdiagnoses while also allowing that those snap misdiagnoses aren't in every and all you know in all cases wrong does that make sense i I'm just curious to hear what you think because it's something I struggle with all the time, and I don't know what to do with it
0: same i mean i I wrote and rewrote sections in my book so many times because of that very conundrum and I, I personally have had experiences on both sides of that coin my disordered eating was at the root of or contributed to many symptoms I ended up you know ended up getting diagnosed with a couple of autoimmune conditions and taking years to get those diagnoses but in the process I mean it was my disordered eating that started the symptoms I think. I didn't have any symptoms. Then I started dieting, trying to lose weight and going further and further into like this wellness culture space because I started developing symptoms from the dieting, from the disordered eating and then trying to cure those, quote unquote, naturally and developed more symptoms and, you know, saw doctor after doctor and finally was diagnosed with autoimmune conditions but that didn't explain every symptom you know those didn't explain why i was missing my period those didn't fully explain like why i was so fatigued or whatever like brain fog and things like that and ultimately when i was able to start True healing and recovery from the disordered eating, a lot of those lingering, pretty much all those lingering symptoms went away when I was eating enough. And I now realize not eating enough can cause hypothalamic amenorrhea, missing periods, it can cause fatigue and brain fog and make people feel generally really unwell. Disordered eating, while it's it has all these physical manifestations, like technically it's a, I mean, an eating disorder specifically is, is a mental health diagnosis. If someone were to say, I mean, at the time, if someone had said to me, I think you might have an eating disorder, I think that could explain what's going on with your symptoms and couple people close to me tried to bring that up. I was not willing to hear that. That was not on my radar, and that was that felt very dismissing. and that felt very much like people were saying it's all in your head or you're doing this to yourself and these symptoms don't have any sort of real biological cause. It's just all because you have this psychological issue with food. And now I can see in retrospect, with a lot more, you know healing and and like education in this area, that, yeah, to some degree, that was true, that it was this quote-unquote psychological diagnosis, which I really think of as it touches all aspects of a person's life. It's not necessarily just a mental health issue, but my psychological issues with food definitely contributed to those symptoms. And then more recently, I had an experience kind of on the opposite side where I had a real condition that I didn't know about for years that was psychologized and explained in psychological terms. And I totally believed it because there's a lot of reason to believe it. I have a what's called a binocular vision disorder, binocular vision dysfunction that my eyes don't create one clear picture of my environment. They're like seeing two different things, and I'm seeing double a little bit. My brain doesn't bring them together. Actually, I've been through a lot of vision therapy now where I think it is finally doing that, which is great. But for years, I was like, it started in 2017 when I was driving on the highway. There are these weird, funky lines on the highway that kind of scrambled my brain, and I had a panic attack pulled over. My husband drove the rest of the way. And like the way that I framed it to myself was it was the week after Trump's inauguration that really stressed me out. We were actually going up to visit some family members who had voted for Trump and were big Trump supporters. And that was going to be stressful. And so like this overwhelming amount of anxiety resulted in this panic attack. And that was uh, an explanation that was co-signed by my therapist at the time, by another therapist. I saw a couple other therapists I saw later, one to help specifically addressed the highway driving phobia that resulted from this because I had numerous other panic attacks driving on the highway after that. And it was, you know, I was always like, well, you know, it happened when I saw a bridge and bridges represent whatever, you know, it was like this sort of effort to explain it in psychological terms. I mean, I also have a PTSD diagnosis. I also have generalized anxiety. I've had many like mental health challenges over the years. So it kind of made sense to me, right, that this would be explained in psychological terms. But it wasn't until I was pages deep in Google looking for self-help on highway driving phobia, which had come back and the the therapy that I had done before wasn't going to be accessible anymore. And I was like, how can I address this? Because I don't want to be stuck and not be able to drive on the highway. You know, I found... Some mention of it somewhere went to a special optometrist who specialized in this and got a diagnosis, and it's changed my life. It's radically, radically helped. It's helped me so dramatically. So, you know, having those two experiences of a physical issue that I was looking for a physical cause of that ended up being largely psychological in nature, or partly at least. I mean, the autoimmune conditions certainly played a role, but there was this eating disorder piece that was really driving a lot of the symptoms. And then this situation where it was like psychological explanations masking a true physical cause. I really personally am am grappling with how to talk about those things and how to make sense of them for myself and potentially talking about them publicly because, it is so fraught, right? Because people have such terrible experiences trying to get diagnoses, trying to get help for conditions like this and can feel so dismissed when a psychological explanation is brought up. Even if like, I think in that article, you were talking about how people can sometimes misattribute or remember things in a way where it's like, oh yeah, that doctor was so mean, that doctor dismissed me. And maybe that's not exactly how it happened. Like I think about. Some of my past experiences where I would have said in the past that this doctor totally dismissed me and told me it was all in my head. And I think about it now and I'm like, did they actually say that though? I really don't think they did. I think it was maybe suggested to me that stress and anxiety were playing a role. And I took that and ran with it because I was sort of primed to have that reaction.
1: Yeah. And there's the desire. I mean, the whole time I was so struck that you were talking by the word explanation. Just whether it's psychological or physiological, that's something we want. You know, how many students have come to my office and be like, well, I was trying to figure out why I, I didn't, I was, you know, I was nervous in tests and then I realized I have like anxiety or I didn't understand why I couldn't concentrate in class. I had ADHD. And again, this is another different touchy subject. And I want to like open this can of worms. But I do think that there's something also, and maybe this is the science, broadly speaking again. Kind of the monopoly it has on truth that that's gone too far. Some of these things don't have explanations, or sometimes it's just how it is. To take an example, trauma, because you mentioned PTSD. So early editions of the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, for people who are listening and don't know what that is, I don't know, I don't know what your listener base is. I don't want to patronize (laughs) anybody, but the manual of like official psychological disorders. Trauma originally was this very very narrow category, so they excluded. For example, bereavement was one of the things they excluded. So it's like my God, bereavement, right? What a, like? You could be depressed for years if you lose a child or a spouse or something, you know. And they're like, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like like really crazy things, like your family's murdered in front of you. You're like in the, in in a war or something like that. And I think that our desire for explanation combined with the increasing totalitarianism of scientific explanation has led to a situation in which all suffering must necessarily be explained with like a kind of scientific ideology. I don't know how I feel about that. I think it might be good in some cases, right? Sometimes people go way too long, I mean, often, right? People go way too long undiagnosed and they can't get the help they need. But also, maybe if we tattoo these labels on ourselves, it becomes difficult to remove them later. And that's something I also see in wellness communities. What those communities do is they give you, they tell you who you are to explain why you've suffered. And sometimes doctors can't do that, right? Like the doctor's like, oh, I don't know why you got cancer. I remember the study came out where they were like, uh, a third of cancers are just random. And people were really mad. They were like, that's not, you can't say that. Like it has to be an explanation. And so the wellness, you turn to the wellness community and you know you go to your alternative, like no alternative medicine practitioners. Like we don't have an explanation for this. I'll guarantee you that that Chinese, Chinese medicine practitioner the Ayurvedic therapy person, they will always have an explanation. That's one of the things that they offer at which paradoxically, I think, is a function of the scientific community being like, well, everything's got an explanation, a scientific explanation, right? Of a sort of weird version of science. And so that's something also I, I, I'm i going to think harder about in the future, just how to deal with it, because it gets really touchy. But I think that's important. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about how to approach that moving forward.
0: Yeah, I agree. I feel like the idea of... Always needing an explanation. I mean, I understand like when you're suffering, you want to know why and you want to know what to do about it if there is, you know, something to do about it. And I think in, in some ways, like, I don't know, for me, the Western medical practitioners, you know, conventional doctors that I've seen, some of them were pretty good at saying like, you know, we don't know. And right. let's, let's try to figure this out. But also here are some approaches that could help whether or not we figure it out or we don't know let's get you some more tests or whatever versus going to a naturopath who's like your problem is you're intolerant to gluten and you need to take these 50 supplements and cut out all these other foods because you know they're somehow related to gluten or they're inflammatory or whatever and then suddenly you're neck deep in like this very disordered eating regimen that's potentially just going to exacerbate symptoms
1: Yes. That's that's theological. That's, again, this is where the natural thing comes in is when there's always an explanation for suffering, it means you're doing theology because it means that you violated some kind of universal law and that if you didn't violate it, you wouldn't suffer. Whereas, I mean, in a non-theological world, you just suffer sometimes. That's it. We don't know why. We do our best and muddle along, right? And and that's never that's not a satisfying explanation, you know, but but it's the truth. And you can try to alleviate that (laughs) suffering, but but you may never know what the reason with a capital R was for it.
0: Right. And I think when people are looking for a reason, sometimes it's to say like how did I cause this? Right. How did I
1: yes, yes
0: bring this on myself? Because we're so conditioned to think, you know, I think in in wellness culture, especially it's like everything is down to the individual and choices you've made and, you know, foods you've eaten or chemicals you were exposed to or whatever it is. And that you somehow have agency and know, you know, if you can know that and you can know that you are definitely responsible, then you can like make changes to alleviate your suffering.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's deeply problematic. I mean, I remember I watched this this video with one of my classes, uh, intro class on religion and spirituality, and it's these two people who are like, we've come up with a way to meditate without meditating, some kind of like brain zapping device. Like, I don't even know the science, this doesn't matter. But basically, one of them gets on, he's very serious, and he goes, you know, this could be a huge thing because we would have figured out how to make everyone happy. And then he brings on this woman who's used the brain zapping device. And she's like, well, I was abused as a kid. And all things. she's listing all these horrible things, right, that have made her unhappy. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, what a horrible world in which the solution to the suffering that results from being abused or not having enough to eat or all of the things that cause us to suffer would be some individual brain zapping response. You know, it's so individualistic, like with the wellness that that's such a it's, it's almost such a weird place of privilege, right? Which is that, no, most of the suffering in the world is just caused by these horrible things that are beyond our control. And the way to address them is by making sure those things don't happen, not zapping the brains of individuals who are suffering because it must be their fault that they're suffering and up to them to relieve it. But it is empowering, right? If you're if you're being abused and you can't control it, it's nice to think that you could zap your brain into happiness. That's just not I, maybe, and maybe am right. And so this gets back now I'm being insensitive, right? Maybe that's what you need. And maybe, maybe when you're suffering, you have no control over it. Maybe all you can have in that context is a diet or a guru you go to who you feel like who gives you things that make you feel like you're doing something and have some control.
0: Yeah. And I guess the question is when those things are potentially harmful to me, that's the problem, right? That's the line that's like, okay, let's try to help people not fall into that trap and try to help people not get exploited by people preying on their vulnerabilities. But when it's something that's more benign, right? If you, if you can have a relationship with a guru who is like a kind, helpful, compassionate person, who's a good listener, and that's what they give you, and they're not doing anything weird and manipulating you into some high demand group or something, then Maybe that is what you need. Maybe that's okay, right? Or maybe, it, you know, if there's a diet where you're eating more of a certain kind of food or less of a certain kind of food and it's not harming you, like it's not creating like obsession and compulsion around food or disorder in your relationship with food and it's more low key and benign and you're able to do it without having it be any big thing, maybe that's not an issue. And I think there are people out there, you know, I know people like that and they're, relatively few and far between, I think, in, in my experience. But there are definitely people who can kind of do those sorts of things and not have it turn into this whole rigmarole. But I think the problem is when the supposed cure does more harm than good, right?
1: Yes. Although I want to suggest something even more outlandish, which is that so what you just said, it does more harm than good. I think that's really important because it may be that the cure does do some harm. Like in other words, maybe the diet that makes you feel really happy, or maybe the diet that makes you feel like you have control is just kind of bad for you. Bad for you according to a certain set of metrics, but good for you according to others. I mean, what's what's chemotherapy but that, right? There's they're like, well, here, you know, you can do this chemotherapy. It's gonna extend your life by an average of, you know, people in your situation according to this computer program, about like six to six six to twelve months. But you're gonna you're going to feel like shit and then you just make a choice. You're like there's this thing, there are these competing values. So I can imagine again rituals or or communities where what if you just need to feel in control so badly, maybe you have to choose an intervention that has bad side effects. I don't know. I mean, this is again, I'm not saying you should, but like I realized it's not so easy and the fact that that we take certain kinds of side effects, the quantifiable ones, the observable ones, to be the decisively bad ones. And other side effects, like disempowerment, to be not as decisive, I think is a problem. There are a lot of costs and benefits in the world to the actions that we take and the rituals that we engage in and the practices that we engage in. And Sometimes they are going to hurt you in, in one area, but they're going to help you in another. And that's something, you know, again, like with vaccines, right, it becomes incredibly complicated because there's this community problem as well. You know, it's just like that, that that doing this, you're not just harming yourself. But I'm not convinced, for example, in the way that I was at the beginning of the pandemic, that someone for whom, like if you're an elderly conservative Catholic, for whom Taking communion is just like the 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 center of your identity and spiritual life in person. I don't know whether it's the right thing to do to stay home from church to avoid the risks of getting COVID. I just don't know that that's true. It's like quitting chemotherapy so that you can live out the last three months of your life happily rather than six months of misery, I think those kinds of trade-offs are real and important. And at the very least, we shouldn't dismiss them. And that in fact, dismissing them counterproductively drives more people into the arms of the manipulative wellness charlatans that you and I are both have been, you know, through most of our our, our engagement, the stuff deeply concerned about.
0: That's such a good point. The trade-offs for any individual are going to be unique and people might make different decisions based on what values they hold most most dear in any situation and with a with the catholic you know example it's like for that individual taking that risk of getting covid potentially like maybe that is something that that person would Want to take on? I just I think the community aspect there is is more fraught, right? Versus with an individual diet or something. But even with a diet, I think we also have to think about the side effects of what happens if I become super obsessive and disordered about this thing. Like what happens to my family or my loved ones or the people who rely on me? You know, has these ripple effects.
1: Yeah. And unless and, and and listeners think that re- religious studies professors are religious professors. I'm not, I'm not Catholic. I'm not religious. I just give this as an example, but it might as well be a secular grandparent, right? It's just like, screw it. I'm going to visit my grandkids. I'm going to hug them. You know, I mean, these kinds of things. And again, COVID really It was bad for what was already a bad situation, which is that people needed explanations and they needed heuristics for making decisions and they were scared of this crazy disease. And so it made us really hate people who had different heuristics and made us deeply incapable of understanding trade-offs and nuance and complexity, in part because we had no cognitive bandwidth left for that. You know we were spending it all on being scared and traumatized by the pandemic. So there's just no time to be like, well, there are a lot of ways to think of value, you know. Those those that, was, that was the, we just needed a, we needed our simple heuristics just to get through the day. And like many things that we needed during COVID but no longer need, but may still get like delivered food to our homes or staying away from people, perhaps it would be best to reexamine the kinds of simple heuristics that we adopted to get through this traumatic period and start to dial them back a little bit as we have a little bit more energy and power to devote to thinking things through.
0: Mm, that's well said. How do you suggest people go about that, like as a as individuals and a society?
1: Well, and in this case, I guess yeah, like I, I I am a religious studies professor. So uh, <laughs> I think rituals that cultivate a healthy relationship to ambiguity are really helpful, at least for me. So that can be anything from allowing chance to have a greater role in your life. So you can do things like instead of making a decision about where you're going to eat by looking at all the reviews online, you know, which is, again, you need a heuristic, you're sticking to it, you flip a coin. And it's a small thing. But if you allow chance into your life in ritualized tiny ways, it helps you realize that it's, you can be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty, that not everything has to have a reason and that not everything, you know what I mean? And so that's, I mean, I guess this as a very concrete thing that people can do to become more comfortable with ambiguity is you can introduce it ritually into your own life by using chance to make decisions. For example, that's something I do. I find it really helpful because it feels like you're like, oh God, I'm just gonna leave this up to a coin. Turns out it's fine. Like actually coins can decide stuff almost as well as we do in a lot of contexts, like which restaurant we're going to go to, you know? Um, so, that's one thing I would say. And then also reading or interacting with religious-slash-spiritual material that cultivates ambiguity. So, almost every religious tradition has its its mystics. There are Christian mystics, there are Sufi mystics in Islam, there are mystic texts in the context of Taoism in, in China. Seeking out mystics, and they can be secular mystics or religious mystics, is helpful as well, because these are people who are good at expressing the beauty and comfort and truth of ambiguity which is a nice sort of antidote to a world in which we are constantly trying to establish certainty so those are the, those are the two things i would suggest off the top of my head for for helping us be more comfortable with complexity and uncertainty
0: i love it i'm definitely going to try at least the coin flipping in my life and maybe seek out some mystics when i have
1: yeah if you do let me let me know how it goes let me know how it goes
0: i will i will yeah that sounds really fun Alan, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour and a half about all this stuff, but I want to be mindful of your time. So tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work.
1: Until recently on Twitter, but now I've, <laughs> I've become somewhat disgusted with being a megalomaniacs plaything. Uh, so I've been off Twitter. Maybe I'll be back after uh, the holidays. But if you just search my name, Alan Levinovitz online, there's all sorts of stuff that I've written about all of these issues. So if there's something, you know, whether it's wellness or naturalness, find things that I've written Just by searching my name. There was something recently actually to end with uh, on ambiguity. I called it bewilderment. So there's an essay I wrote called in Praise of Bewilderment for the Hedgehog Review, in which I just talk about how having a little bewilderment in your life is like having a little bit of spandex in your jeans. <laughs> it means that when things change, you can adjust rather than ripping and makes you more resilient. So that's that's a good place to start.
0: I love that. We'll link to that in the show notes for this and, and some other stuff you've written too.
1: Thanks. I appreciate that.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's been so fun.
0: So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Alan Levinovitz for being here. And thanks to you for listening. If you like this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Just search for Rethinking Wellness with Christy Harrison wherever you listen to podcasts or go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to get new episodes delivered to your inbox every other week. If you have any questions for me about wellness and diet culture, you can send them in at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in my newsletter or possibly even on this podcast in the future. If you're looking for help healing your own relationship with food, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food, at christyharrison.com slash strategies. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Witasik and her team at A-Team Virtual. Album art by Tara Jacoby and theme song written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. We're just going with that for the sign off. Keeping it simple. Take care.